70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, my name is Bernd Seiser. Seit 1974 Hello, my name is Bünd Seiser. I've been listening to shortwave radio since 1974 and to KBS World Radio's German service from its day one, May 1st, 1981. I have also been serving as an official monitor since 2003. Congratulations on the 70th anniversary, and I hope to catch the German broadcast on 3955 kHz for many years to come. I will look forward to keeping myself updated with useful information about Korea through the channel. My favorite program is Magazine K. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the two hosts of the show. Once again, happy 70th birthday. This has been Bernd Seiser from Ottenau, Germany. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Thursday the 16th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. More than half a million students took the Sunung College Entrance Exam today, which was held without COVID restrictions for the first time in four years. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Last week's decision by the Democratic Party to withdraw its impeachment motion for the hand of the broadcast watchdog has led to a legal challenge by the People Power Party. We'll take a look at this issue for our in-depth today. And coming up for Explore Korea, we'll be learning about restaurants catered towards taxi drivers. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Those were some scenes from in front of some 1,200 test centres across the country early Thursday morning as high school juniors gathered in the morning to cheer on those sitting for the annual college scholastic ability test. Such pep rallies took place for the first time in four years after the COVID-19 quarantine regulations were eased earlier this year. Let's listen to what some of the test takers had to say on their way in. I'm nervous and trembling because what I've been studying for three years ends with this exam today. I studied hard and my aim is not to make mistakes and get the ones I know right. The Sunan Day came as I frantically prepared for the exam. It's got to be the same for everyone, and I hope everyone will answer the exam questions well today. 
Uh, KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Hee Jin joins us in the studio now to give us the details surrounding the test, as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee Jin, hello. Hello, jang So we heard the cheering squad and nervous test takers prior to the exams. Once the test started, however, South Korea fell silent as more than half a million sat for the annual state-administered exam, or CSAT as it's known. It is considered the most important test for most South Koreans. And so the whole nation tried to keep quiet with airplanes grounded during the foreign language section of the test, among other measures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So years of arduous studies, hard work and competition all boil down to this nine-hour exam, which are now over. What can you tell us? Well, many of the nearly 504,600 who applied to take this year's test will be busy comparing answers to the exams, which is considered the most important exam for many South Koreans. Needless to say, the whole nation pitched in to set optimal conditions for them. Flight takeoffs and landings were banned during the 35-minute English listening section from 105. 5pm. Planes approaching airports during the time were advised to stand by three kilometres above ground. Drivers were advised not to honk their horns and live fire. Military exercises were rescheduled to ensure the most conducive test environment. And as usual, even the stock exchanges delayed their trading by one hour to disperse the morning commute. So the test takers uh, would be able to arrive on time without any issues. Indeed. Um, banks, state-run corporations and organisations all delayed operating hours and police and taxi drivers were on standby at major subway stations to rush those running late to these test sites. Unlike the three previous exams, which were held amid the COVID-19 pandemic, applicants uh, took the test without wearing masks. Many parents were seen at churches and temples praying for their children uh, taking their exams, uh, which can determine the future of its test takers in the highly competitive South Korean society. The results will be released on December 8th. Yes, and we wish all the best for those who who took the test today. Let's turn now to the global arena. US President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met met for the first time in a year on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in California on Wednesday. Both leaders made an effort to thaw chilly ties in pursuit of stability amid global turmoil. So what can you tell us? Well, the presidents of the US and China sought to repair bilateral ties in their first summit in a year. Now, in a press conference after his meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the margins of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco, US President Joe Biden said that the two had found common ground despite increasing uh, tensions between their nations. Now, here's what he had to say. I reiterate what I've said since I've become president, what every previous president of late has said, that uh, we, uh, we maintain the agreement that there is a one-China policy and that uh, I'm not going to uh, change that. That's not going to change. And so uh, that's about the extent to which we discussed it. Now, Biden's comments reflect Xi's call in the summit on the U.S. to make tangible efforts to honour its commitment to refrain from supporting Taiwanese independence and to support China's peaceful reunification, with Xi offering assurances that no military action will be taken in the next several years. 
I also stress the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. It's clear that we object to, be to Beijing's non-market economic practices and disadvantage that, that disadvantage American businesses and workers, and that we'll continue to address them. And I named what I thought a number of those were. Now, such policies by Beijing led to Biden reportedly telling Xi that Washington's export controls, investment screening and unilateral sanctions will remain in place in the interest of national security, despite the Chinese leader's assertions that they harm his country's legitimate business interests. Now, the White House said after the meeting that the two also discussed the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, as well as the fentanyl crisis, with China pledging to crack down on the manufacture of the base ingredient that makes its way to the U.S. Meanwhile, South Korean President Yoon Sung-yeol, who is also attending the APEC summit, has pledged to contribute to the organization as a pivotal country in the world. Can you elaborate? Well, the top office said the pledge came in a keynote speech by Yun at the APEC CEO Summit in San Francisco on Wednesday, in which he unveiled ways to cooperate to boost APEC interconnectivity in trade, investment and supply chains and digital and future generations, citing APEC's efforts to lower trade barriers in the region and boost member states' capability. Yun stressed the need for the collective to expand it its role as a guardian of multilateral trade, stressing the resilience of supply chains as key to multilateral trade. The president called on member states to share their experiences with such resilience, including the development of early warning systems. Turning to North Korea, the regime has threatened to take more aggressive military action as it protested the annual security consultative meeting held by Seoul and Washington early this week. Yes, the North state-run Korean Central News Agency released a statement by the Defense Ministry spokesperson on Thursday blaming the U.S. and its followers for worsening state affairs, mentioning the latest visit by U.S. officials to Seoul and the SMC, uh, SCM. Sorry. The Defense Ministry said South Korea, the U.S. and Japan are demonstrating that their military readiness against the North is not of defense na- uh, defensive nature, but aimed at invading the North by force. The ministry said the North uh, will strongly tackle all threats to its safety and interests with military action that is aggressive, strategic and tangible. The latest statement is the North's first reaction to the SEM, which was held in Seoul earlier on Monday. Meanwhile, the third committee of the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution condemning human rights violations by North Korea on Wednesday. Can you tell us more? Well, the Committee in Charge of Human Rights Issues held a meeting at the UN headquarters in New York and passed the 19th resolution of its kind since 2005 by consensus without a vote. This year's resolution, led by European uh, Union member states, is almost the same as last year's, but added wording related to the forced repatriation of North Korean escapees in China. The text strongly urges all member states to respect the fundamental principles of non-refoulement, especially in the light of resumption of cross-borders travel. The resolution will be presented to the plenary session of the UN General Assembly next month, with South Korea, like last year, co-sponsoring the document. 
And finally, the Supreme Court upheld a one-year prison sentence for the mother-in-law of President Yoon Suk-yeol for fabricating bank balance certificates and fraudulently signing a real estate contract. Can you tell us more? Well, in its ruling on Thursday, the top court said there is no legal error in the appellate court's conviction of Chun Sun for forging and violating the act on registration of real estate under actual title holder's name. Cho was indicted for colluding with a person surnamed An while buying land in Songnam, Gyeonggi province, between April and October 2013 and falsifying documents purporting to show bank deposits totaling 34.9%. 9 billion won or around 27 million US dollars. Chair was also charged for signing a contract under borrowed names, including that of An's son in law. Both the first and appeal courts convicted Chair, with the latter putting her behind bars in July of this year, citing the severity of her crimes as a risk of flight, uh, keeping her imprisoned through next July unless she is released on parole or pardoned. That's all for our news briefing today. He's in. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Tensions between the rival political parties are brewing over the impeachment of the head of the nation's broadcast watchdog, Yi Dong-wan. The main opposition Democratic Party initially tabled an impeachment motion last week, but then withdrew it because, due to parliamentary technicalities, it was unlikely to pass. The DP are planning to file the motion again at the next plenary session on November 30th, when they will be able to push it through using their parliamentary majority. But the ruling People Power Party have railed against this move, accusing the DP of playing the parliamentary system, and they have requested the Constitutional Court to review the legality of the withdrawal of the impeachment motion, specifically the National Assembly Speaker Kim Jinpyo's acceptance of the withdrawal. The PPP has also filed for an injunction to prevent the impeachment bill from being retabled during the next plenary session. To take a closer look at this issue, we're joined on the line now by our go-to political commentators. First, we have Law Professor Cho Hee-kyung from Hongik University. Professor Cho, hello. Hello. And we have standing by affiliate professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies with us as well. Professor Kim, hello to you too. Hello. So the situation with the impeachment motion for the Korea Communications Commission chairman, Yi Dong-wan, it is rather complicated, involving parliamentary technicalities. It involves a cancelled PPP filibuster, which uh, would have caused the plenary session to end without a vote. The DP withdrew the motion to try and pass it next time. We'll try not to get bogged down by the minutiae of the technicalities uh, for now. But Professor Cho, can you first tell us why the DP is looking to impeach E? What is the legal reasoning for their motion? Well, the reasoning for the motion is that uh, Yi Dong-wan, the Communications Commission chairman, has committed impeachable offences, but it's actually difficult to pinpoint exactly what it is that he has done that is impeachable. Now, uh, I understand that the Democratic Party is citing about six reasons. Um, 
the actual law, Article 6 of the Communications Commission Act, says that the chairman of the commission can be impeached if he or she is in breach of the constitution or other laws. But uh, the offences that the Democratic Party cites are a little bit difficult to sort of um, see whether they are clear impeachable offences as defined under the law because they concern things like Idongwan um, not full satisfying the proper procedural steps in appointing certain directors and auditors of uh, media organizations and you know, not uh, fulfilling his duty as the chairman properly, etc. And I suspect, as, as most people do, that this is more of a preventative impeachment. Uh, so he's being impeached for his past sins because people feel that, well, we know what he's going to do now. He's going to totally undermine the independence of uh, the media, as he has done under Im Young-bak administration. So we are going to try to prevent him from doing this, and so he should be impeached. I think the real serious uh, issue about Idongwan and him being the chairman of the commission is the fact that he's professed himself to be a spin doctor, and the thing is, there there are obviously uh, very good uses for spin doctors, but um, not for uh, a public office that requires independence and objectivity, etc. Which Idongwan he, himself is saying that he's not. So I think that's really the the main issue. Professor Kim, what's your take on the DP's move? I kind of agree with the view that it was not a good idea to appoint self-proclaimed spin doctor to this position. Uh, This position, as mentioned, is the one that really has to take care of balance and impartiality of the media as a whole. So I would not believe, I don't believe the presidential choice of the KCC chair, KCC head was a wise one. Having said that, however, uh, you know, that's president's prerogative and the decision has been made. And now the majority of the National Assembly Democratic Party trying to do, uh, quote unquote, the preventative impeachment doesn't make any sense at all here. Uh, you know, we, we don't see the legal base here, as mentioned, and there's no such thing as preventative impeachment. It, it, such impeachment should not happen at all. So on the legal side and uh, the substance-wise, that dimension, I don't think it makes any sense. We're only talking about DP's, Democratic Party's impeachment effort. That's what we're talking about. Separate from whether the appointment itself was a wise one or not, mm. uh, this impeachment doesn't have any substance on the legal side and legal merit here. Politically speaking, I was thinking hard about so what is it that Democratic Party has in mind in terms of seeking political gains from here? Uh, from the Democratic Party supporters' perspective, does this action just highlight the fact that the appointment of KCC chair was not a wise one? Uh, it was not a healthy one? Okay, that's accepted. But the, did Democratic Party have to go all the way to go to impeachment? Because impeachment is kind of like a last resort, kind of last available 
uh, measure in a way. And I just can't help myself thinking Democratic Party in trying to make that point to their supporters, they're just abusing the system of impeachment. Impeachment has, is a very serious device, institutional device, to remove uh, kind of like public enemy, if you will. And it has to be you know, exercised with utmost caution because it is one of those last resort thing. And, and the Democratic Party's decision to use impeachment to make such point, again, is totally unwise the way I see it. And even more, for the election coming, with the election coming out, it angers, infuriates the other side, uh, People Power Party supporters. And also, it could actually, uh, you know, negatively make a negative impact on the centralist voters in the center as well. So, legal aspect, political aspect, either way, to me, it doesn't make sense. Professor Chalk, what about you? What do you make of the DP's move to try and impeach E? You said earlier that the uh, offences are not really clear. Well, if I might uh, just clarify a couple of things to avoid any misunderstanding. So uh, I said the offences are not very clear because they are very difficult to understand because they are on very technical grounds. Uh, he, it is claimed that he has not observed proper, proper procedures for uh, appointments and the removals of various people uh, to directorships and, and even to the commission itself uh, and also to the, the boards of uh, broadcasting stations, etc., etc. And I don't mean to make light of them. It's simply that uh, for from a layperson's perspective who is not familiar with these technicalities and procedural issues, it's difficult to understand how serious his offences are. But that's not to say that there is no legal ground to uh, move for an impeachment motion mm. against him. So it's really up to the court. But I would hazard a guess that the constitutional court is likely to decide that these do not mount amount to uh, impeachable offences altogether. However, the political point about this is that as soon as the impeachment motion is passed in the National Assembly, then uh, Lee has to stop work altogether. He cannot no longer function as this KCC chairperson. And right now, the situation um, in KCC is that it's a five-person uh, committee, the, the commission itself, but the uh, president has refused to approve the Democratic Party's uh, nomination, and she has actually resigned from the candidacy. Um, two other appoint appointments have not even passed the National Assembly. So currently, the commission is actually operating with just two people, the, the commission chairman, uh, Lee himself, and one other person. Now, if Lee is impeached and the impeachment motion goes through and then uh, the trial has to take place, that's going to take some months, you know, at least three or four months, even if it's dealt with very quickly. Right. And so during that process, any decision made by KCC will be uh, challengeable as being null and void. I mean, how can you have like one person make such important decisions by uh, such an important organization as KCC? Right. So that's the, the political point, I think. 
Uh, in the meantime, the DP, they have said that they plan to re-pursue ease removal with another motion when the National Assembly convenes uh, plenary sessions on November 30th and December 1st. But the PPP are taking legal action against it. Uh, briefly, Professor Chaw, is it technically possible to submit another impeachment motion? And is it possible for the PPP to block it with the legal action? Uh Yes to the first question, no to the second question. Uh, so the, the Conservative Party is claiming that, well, this issue has already been tabled and therefore uh, because of the double jeopardy principle, you cannot retable an issue that has already been tabled to the National Assembly. But if you look at the actual provision uh, of the, the uh, Legislature Act, it doesn't say a, a, an issue that's been tabled. It says an issue that has been voted against cannot be retabled. So this issue, this bill hadn't even been uh, tabled nor discussed. And so that's not subject to this uh, double jeopardy principle. Uh, but the real question was whether can it be withdrawn after having been submitted? And that's really totally up to how the this National Assembly procedural rules are interpreted. And the uh, the, the rules are interpreted in such a way that until and unless it's actually right. subject of discussion, it hasn't been tabled yet. So yes, uh, they can they could withdraw it, and it's been accepted the withdrawal itself. And certainly, Conservative Party has challenged challenged it, but the Constitutional Court has always taken the stance that the rules and their interpretations uh, are left up to the National okay. Assembly, and they've always respected that interpretation. Okay, so then, Professor Kim, taking that into account, how do you think this situation will pan out now? Do you think uh, it is inevitable that E will be impeached? I guess we have to wait and see, and there are different variables here. But looking at the big picture, uh, this just reminds us uh, what I would like to call my personal, just a personal conviction that this country has an impeachment addiction. Uh, looking back, uh, I belong to a very small minority who actually uh, opposed President Bakkanes' impeachment at that time, not because I supported her presidency, which I never did, really. Uh, and I saw a lot of problems. I was very critical of her government. And I personally, uh, personally, uh, I saw problems with his chief of staff and uh, legal advisors kind of ruining the government all the way. So I had so much trouble with Park government, but I oppose the idea of impeaching the presidency because uh, if you st- if you start uh, you know begin impeaching uh, political enemies or political figures, there's no end to it. And uh, impeachment, as I said before, uh, it's a last resort measure. And uh, the the you know the, the National Assembly acting to impeach KCC had is causing a lot of concerns because there's a question of where do you stop? Uh, so are you going to go further impeaching other ministers, uh, set, you know, uh, head of the, the different ministries? Uh, where, where do you actually stop? If you continue to use impeachment, that's putting, driving the constitutional court and judiciary into the corner and forcing them to make very important political decisions that should be made in political circles rather than in judiciary. And so not only that, and what happens is people will realize, okay, uh, impeachment is not going through because these judges are with the government side. Then we'll have to replace these judges after the election. Judges become 
kind of political appointment, appointees, uh, they become a subject of political decisions and changing, you know, uh, being cha- being having to change all the time when there is new government comes in. Uh, the independence of uh, judiciary gets fundamentally harmed by doing so. So uh, I think this country as a whole should stop and, you know, make up its mind in terms of how impeachment system as a whole should be exercised. I think in this particular case of KCC, this is a good case where the country as a whole uh, need to think together what impeachment really is and how it should be used. Professor Chul, how do you think the situation will pan out? And what do you make of Professor Kim's comments there about what he's called a impeachment addiction? I think realistically, the Democratic Party is most likely to retable, not retable, but table the, the bill again at the next session of the General Assembly, the National Assembly. And most likely the bill will pass and Lee will be impeached, um, or at least Lee's impeachment issue will go to the Constitutional Court. But I doubt that the Constitutional Court would actually uh, decide for impeaching Lee. So I think it it will be rejected at the court. Now, I do agree with uh, the fact that there is too many impeachment uh, processes going on. The the, the one against Lee Sang-Mindy. Um, the, the the minister and now against KCC. But why do we have so many impeachment uh, bills being put forward? And here I do agree with Professor Kim in that it's really because of the judicialization or legalization of politics. So political issues are not being resolved through politics, but they are essentially leaving it up to the court, uh, pushing it to the courts to decide the issue. And and this is why the impeachment process is being abused. But I do not agree that uh, Park Geun-hye's impeachment can be compared to uh, Lee, uh, Lee's impeachment in this case, because if any president should have been impeached, then it was really Park, because she had really abdicated a position as uh, the president at the time. And she was clearly in breach of her constitutional duties as the president. Okay, we will see how the situation develops over the next two weeks. We're going to leave it there for today. We've been speaking to Professor Cho Hee-kyung from Hong University and Professor Kim Byung-ju from the Hong University of Foreign Studies. Thank you both, as always, for your thoughts and your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 1.51 points, or 0.06% on Thursday, to close at 2,488.18. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose, gaining 1.75 points, or 0.22%, to close at 811.11. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 3.91 against the U.S. dollar, to close at 1,296.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next is Korea Trending, our daily segments where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, Jungle. Okay. So what's the first story that you have for us today? 
Well, it's a moment of truth for many high schoolers today. Sunung or college entrance exam is a major event for both the students and their avid supporters. However, there are older groups just as eager, the oldest test taker this year being 84 years old or young, depending on how you look at it. Whether they're <laughs> 40 or 80, they're all high schoolers who worked hard to prepare for this important exam. 84 years old. That's incredible, taking on a challenge like this. Uh, as you said, there are quite a few adults who take the exam each year. Um, they're all pretty incredible. They're all taking it for various reasons, I'm guessing. Right. There's a variety of reasons. 58-year-old Yang Chunshim studying in Ilsung Women's High School says she wanted to have a diploma to show off and got herself enrolled, and she is still going the distance. Uh, to give you a bit of a background info, Ilsung Women's High School is an institute that helps women who had to halt their studies in the past by offering them a chance to start again and receive diplomas. Uh, Kim Jong-je, also a senior at that same high school, is the oldest test taker this year. She has a touching story behind her decision to go back to school. 27 years ago, after realizing that she could not read or write while helping her daughter with preparations to study abroad, she felt the urge to upgrade her level of linguistic ability. And the 84-year-old says she had felt ashamed at the time and wanted to make her daughter proud by becoming capable of communicating fluently in English with her grandkids who live in the U.S. Well, what a life-affirming story. I'm hope I'm uh Hope I'm as determined and passionate at that age as well. I'm sure they'll be eagerly awaiting their results coming on December 8th. But uh, no matter what they get, they can really stand proud and our full respect and support goes out to them. Incredible. OK, let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Well, no one stays on top forever, or in this case, no trend stays on top forever. Tanghulu, the candied fruit stick that became arguably the hottest street snack in Korea this year, is seeing its fame fizzling out a bit. Yes, uh, we've talked about this. We've seen new Tanghulu shops popping up everywhere uh, over the last year or so. But what's happening? How do we know that they're declining in popularity? According to the Ministry of the Interior and Safety on Tuesday, recent data shows 54 Tanghulu establishments in Korea have closed down this year alone. This will be a record-setting year in that respect, with double digits notched for the first time since relevant numbers were compiled some four years ago. Not only that, the biggest number of closures came this September and October at 30. While those are some startling figures, especially considering how quickly the number of new shops had been rising. Yeah, this trend peaked in 2023. As of late October, there are reportedly 1,673 Tanghulu shops across wow. the nation. And get this, 1,329 of them opened this year. Wow, that's, so that's incredible. Yeah, around an 80% spike on year. And, but now even the bigger franchises are seeing issues with one already having closed, having to close down six stores in three districts in the capital. Some stores were only up and running for a month. Experts believe the main driving force behind the declining demand and popularity is how snack trends change as the seasons turn. Many Tanghulu businesses are reportedly brainstorming to come up with innovative items that are in tune with the winter trend like uh, themes of Santa or Christmas. Yes, we'll see if uh, these businesses can come up with ways to try and keep their customers returning. But it looks like the Tanghulu craze has reached its peak, definitely. OK, let's continue on to our story now. What do you have for us? To commemorate World Taekwondo's 50th anniversary, the Federation donated a Taekwondo statue to the Olympic Museum Lausanne, Switzerland, and on Wednesday the statue was unveiled. Right, so World Taekwondo, formerly known as the World Taekwondo Federation, is the international 
federation governing the Korean sport. It's a member of the Association of Summer Olympic International Federation. So it's under, it's uh, so it makes sense that we are seeing this statue at the Olympic Museum. Can you tell us more about the unveiling? The unveiling ceremony was attended by numerous officials and dignitaries, including International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach, the World Taekwondo President Cho Jong-won, and IOC chief said that the statue represents the sport's important place within the Olympic program and the global community. The statue depicts two Taekwondo athletes, both attempting to land a trademark roundhouse kick and a turning back hook kick to the head. And its uh, octagonal base displays the WT and Taekwondo Humanitarian Foundation, or THF, logos. The names of the five continents participating in the sport and the phrases, sport of hopes and dreams. This is quite significant because among 35 Olympic sporting events, including both summer and winter games, only 10 have statues at the museum. Well, the federation and the sport have, of course, come a long way over the past several decades, putting in efforts to involve and improve as an Olympic sport and its uh, various activities outside the global competition as well. Yes, indeed, the THF and the WT have collaborated on providing free educational training programs for students in regions ravaged by war or natural disasters, including the Hope and Dream Sports Festival in refugee camps in Jordan and Syria that invited over 2,300 participants. The statue is displayed close to the Olympic flame and the statue of the founder of the Olympic movement, Baron Pierre de Coubertin. Also on this day, the Taekwondo Humanitarian Foundation was awarded the Olympic Cup by the IOC for its work in empowering refugees around the world through the sport. Right, so for any visitors to the Olympic Museum, look out for this Taekwondo statue. That's where we're going to wrap it up for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, it's Explore Korea, our weekly segments where we discover more of Korea's cultural, historical and travel highlights with our special lineup of contributors, or explorers as we like to call them. This week we have another new explorer joining us in the studio, introducing us to a place to visit or a site to see. We welcome Yi Jian, reporter for the Korea Jiang Daily. Jen, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Jango. Yes, as it's uh, your first time, can you briefly introduce yourself uh, to our listeners? Yes, hello, my name is Jian. I am a culture writer at the Korea Jungang Daily. My main coverage is on food, and I also write some articles about travel, musicals, and books as well. I see. Well, uh, welcome on board. It's uh, great to have you with us, and I'm curious to see uh, what you will bring to this uh, segment as well. So let's get stuck in. What is our topic for today? Today, I want to talk about Kisa Shikdang, otherwise known as the cabbie diners of Korea. These modest eateries around town are often considered synonymous with being a really, really tasty restaurant. So I'll be talking about why that is, as well as some background on these cabbie diners, and lastly, offer you some menu recommendations for anyone interested in trying one out. Okay, so Kisa Shikdang, or cabbie diners. When we say cabbies, we mean taxi drivers, right? Yes. So these are restaurants that were either established to cater to taxi drivers or they became frequented by them. So how did Kisa Shikdang come about exactly? 
So they organically rose around 1970s to provide busy taxi drivers with an affordable, hearty meal in a very, very short amount of time. So you can say that it's sort of Korea's version of a fast food restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Although Seoul today has a well-connected public transportation system, that wasn't always the case. In 1990, there were only five subway lines, whereas now there are 17. The population, meanwhile, hasn't changed much. According to the city's data, Seoul's population this year so far is around 9.6 million. In the 1990s, it was around 10 million, and in the 80s, it was around 8 million. So this means that a lot more people were taking taxis 20, 30 years ago, and taxi drivers had a lot more customers. Right, yes, that makes sense. Right. And so one taxi driver whom I interviewed for my article, Mr. Peck, said that time is money, and I think that really sums up the nature of their profession. Mm. They needed a place to eat out one at a time at a time that there weren't as many restaurants as today, and they needed the food served fast. Kisa Shikdan came about to offer drivers just that. Right, so the number one characteristic is speed then, so they don't miss out on any fares for the day. But uh, what else? What are some other characteristics of Kisa Shikdan? How do I know if a restaurant is one? Right, some actually have Kisa Shikdan in their restaurant name, but that always isn't always the case. Mm. As a true, at a true cabby diner, there are few unspoken rules. As said before, quick service is one of the key qualifications. Food is often served in just about five minutes of placing the order. And if you visit one, you'll see that drivers gobble up their meals just as fast. <laughs> this is sort of on a side note, but apparently many cab drivers in Korea suffer from stomach-related illnesses and indigestion <laughs> because they have to eat so quickly and then spend so much time sitting and stressing out from traffic on the road. Well, that's not good, of course, perhaps uh, not uh, the best endorsement for cabby drivers. But uh, sadly, that is the reality. Perhaps uh, all new diners can enjoy the meals a bit more at a bit more of a slower pace. Right. And now back to the point, cabby diners also tend to operate late into the night for drivers working irregular hours and offer free parking spaces. They also must cater to customers who come alone as cab drivers work by themselves. I'm sure that some of your audiences in Korea will have noticed that not all restaurants in the country welcome customers who come to eat by themselves. Mm. Kisa Shikdang, however, offers one-portion meals. And these diners also used to offer car wash services, though I believe that it is no longer the case due to legal issues today. Right, okay. So after speed, it's about being open late into the night and somewhere where you feel comfortable eating by yourself. But on top of that, cab drivers were also particularly discerning as well, right? Koreans often expect kizashikdang to be delicious as well. Yes. So why is that? So that's largely due to the long-held notion that taxi drivers are in the know about everything, including best restaurants and the juiciest gossip. (laughs) This was especially true, I believe, um, during the times before the internet, and the connection between good food and Kisa Shikdang still remains today. And also the menus at cabby diners are essentially what Korean ajashis prefer, Mm. as most cab drivers are middle-aged or retired men. So just to give you a reference, the average age of Seoul's taxi drivers is 64, with less than 1% who are actually female. Wow, okay. So in other words, there are no surprises in terms of taste and visuals when it comes to Kisa Shikdang. What you see is what you get. The taste is very straightforward with zero fuss. So if you imagine a typical kimchi jjigae, otherwise known as kimchi stew, 
you'll find that at a cabbie diner. Mm. I've also noticed that everything tends to be more strongly seasoned, so saltier and sweeter. (laughs) (laughs) To cater to the uh, so-called ajashi taste buds then. Yes. (laughs) The generous portions also can sometimes act as a wow factor. For instance, fried pork cutlet or tonkatsu is a popular kisa shikdang menu that is as big as one's face. The tonkatsu eatery that I visited while reporting on this topic was Kumang Pork Cutlet Restaurant in Songbuk District. And it was just so much food that people could be easily seen, spotted, easily seen or, or spotted getting their leftovers as takeout. Right, so no fast food with uh, healthy portions, uh, to say the least. So because of uh, these reasons, these restaurants tended to be very local Right. So you wouldn't usually find them any sort of travel guidebooks or anything like that. But they offered a, a unique a window into uh, Korean society, into uh, cabbie life as well, I would feel. Uh, you said you visited a few for your report, for your reporting on these restaurants, right? So they do still exist then? Yes, they do. Um, however, many cab drivers who I actually interviewed have told me that Kisa Shikdang don't live up to the same reputation as they did before. Some said that they didn't go to cabbie diners to eat anymore because they either found the food too expensive or not very good. Mm. One had even packed his own lunch. Another driver said that he stopped going to a cabbie restaurant that he had gone for for over a decade because it had changed their ways of cooking in order to maintain a lower price point. Mm. And this is a really big issue price and when we talk about kisa shikdang because consumer prices advanced 8.3.8% on year in October compared to 3.7% in September and 3.4% in August. Statistics Korea earlier this month reported that in October prices for agriculture, livestock and fisheries jumped 7.3% and vegetables surged 13.5% compared to the same time last year. So the cost of eating out is soaring in Korea and these kisa shikdang whose identity lies and serving filling meals with good protein at an affordable price point seem to be really struggling. Mm. The remaining kisa shikdang that still do see good business don't only target cab drivers these days, but also regular people. They lean favorably toward anyone who is looking for a relatively cheap, hearty meal with the freedom to eat alone, as well as millennials and Gen Zers who find the retro atmosphere and the food of Kisa Shikdang <laughs> interesting. Right, so they almost become a bit of a hipster hangout nowadays for young people as well, which I'm sure some listeners will think is a shame, but that is unfortunately the uh, reality, I guess. That yes. aspect about inflation, I think, is so important as well. Even though taxi fares have increased in recent years, they're still behind inflation. Inflation, I'm guessing, and demand is down for taxis as well, as you mentioned earlier. So these uh, restaurants have to change with the times as well. Still, they do still exist. And I'm sure some of our listeners will be curious to check one out, maybe. Any restaurant or menu recommendations that you have for us? Right. So I have to recommend pekban, which means a meal served with rice, soup, and some side dishes, and a protein of choice. It is the most typical style of meal at Kisa Shikdang. So for my article, I asked cab drivers in Seoul for their go-to cabbie restaurants, and more than one recommended pekban diner called Songbukdong Pork Ribs in Songbuk District. That diner dates back to 1971 and is widely viewed as one of Korea's earliest Kisa Shikdang. Mm. Another favorite was Persimmon Treehouse Diner in Yeonnamdong Mapo District. This one is super famous because it's been on many television shows. Right. Drivers seem to like it because the restaurant is um, clean and has really good food as well.
I also recommend the fried pork cutlet because it is different from the Japanese style of the dish that is seen more trendy these days in Korea. It's thinner and bigger and served with sides like kimchi, uh, cream soup, and cabbage salad. <laughs> so this local variation on the Japanese dish came about because Koreans wanted to cook the meat faster in order to serve it up to cab di- drivers who were in a hurry. Again, once again, speed is the uh, key factor here. Yes. And the last menu that I want to recommend is jajangmyeon or black bean noodles and udon. A place called Wonjo Gisanim Punshik sells great jajangmyeon and udon noodles in Daehungdong Mapo District for just about 5,000 won or $4. Inside, it's a small diner with just about 10 or fewer seats, but it has a cool retro vibe. Mm. So if you haven't been to a Kisa Shikdang before, these are some dishes you can try out. Right, and that last one even has Kisanim in the name of the restaurant itself <laughs> as well. Indeed, it sounds like a, a great experience for anyone who wants to go check it out and possibly delve into the Korean cabbies world. Right, so that was Kisa Shikdang or Cabbie Diners, and that's all for Explore Korea this week. Chian, thank you for coming in. That was fun, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Thank you. This is pianist Son Yegwan. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. Okay, so what do you have for us first today? It's Huang Ju Young's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. So UNESCO held its 42nd session of the General Conference in Paris on Wednesday. And during that session, an important vote took place. The vote was whether to keep Korea on UNESCO's executive board or not. And Korea passed. Uh, so that means the country will be on the board until 2027. Wow, that sounds like very uh, welcome news for Korea. Can you walk us through Korea's connection with UNESCO? It started uh, several decades ago, right? Right, yeah. So Korea joined UNESCO in 1950, but it wasn't until 1987 that the country became an executive board member. Since then, Korea has been on the board a total of nine times, and this would be the country's fifth consecutive time. Regarding the vote, the Korea's Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Thursday released a press release. Mm, right, and what did the ministry say? The statement was pretty much a pledge. The ministry said that over the next four years, Korea will actively participate in discussions at UNESCO. It also said that it will make efforts to achieve international peace and common prosperity for humanity. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Korea can do over the next four years. Yes, it sounds great that Korea has kept its place. Mm. Uh, Let's continue on now to our next article. What else? Have you spotted in tomorrow's newspapers? Well, works by the Korean-Colombian artist Gala Pores Kim are currently part of multiple exhibitions and shows in Korea right now. She sat down with Park and Sol from the Korea Times to talk about the shows, her work, and where she got the inspiration for her creations. You can read the interview in tomorrow's weekend section of the Korea Times. 
Right, and you said multiple shows then. Yes. That must mean she's uh, having a pretty busy year. <laughs> She is, yeah. So Poras Kim is one of the four finalists for the Korea Artist Prize. For our listeners who may not know what that is, it is a major contemporary art award jointly organised by the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art Korea and the SBS Foundation. So some of her works are on display as part of the group exhibition Korea Artist Prize 2023 at the MMCA. Then at the EM Museum of Art, the artist is holding a solo show called National Treasures that will run through March 31st next year. The article includes pictures of her works that are on display in both exhibitions, so you can get an idea of her art style. But as we are on radio right now, let me give a brief description of them so our listeners can get a rough idea. Right, sure. So uh, how about we take a look at the pieces on display at the uh, National Treasures exhibition? Sure. So maybe you can guess from the name of the exhibition, but the artist has drawn National Treasures from both North and South Korea together on four large canvases. Mm. Some of the pieces include items that were taken from Korea during Japanese colonial rule. And uh, they are also from the period when the two Koreas were not divided. And I feel that her art art has an important message. This is her way of reuniting these artefacts while also touching on the subjects of division and colonization. Uh, She also asks the question, what does it mean to have national treasures? So this is just some of the information that can be found in Park Ansel's article. She also talks more about the other types of art she has created as well. So I think it's an interesting read, especially for art lovers. Indeed. Okay, so that's where we're going to have to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Hon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in!
KBS World Radio.